0: Hey, good morning, try that again, maybe it's just on on the second floor, all right, um, hey, it's great to be with you this morning, my name is Ross, I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, I'm most often uh, down at the South Campus, and affectionately known around here as the Satellite Campus, so I'm glad to be called up this morning, uh, to uh, uh, To the big leagues, and so it it is great. I haven't been here since before the pandemic. We would do some pulpit swaps, and we haven't done that since before the pandemic. And so this is my first time to get to see uh, you guys do church on three floors on a Sunday morning. So I've been here when it was being tested and all, but nobody was in here, and it's pretty amazing. I mean, this is pretty cool. What's going on here on Sunday mornings, and so. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Um, and, and I want to take a sec. Do you mind if I just brag on the downtown leadership for just a minute? Would you care about that? I, so first of all, um, I, listen, uh, Matt McGill, I, I think he just has done a fantastic job. I'm excited about what's next for him in ministry. Yeah, I mean, a decade of ministry here downtown, and his fingerprints are all over the place. And not to mention um, just the leadership that he cultivated, and, and uh, we witnessed that this morning. Um, Chris Foreman and uh, Peyton uh, Jewell, I have to figure out her last name, new last name, Um, and what she's doing to lead worship. And, I mean, this is amazing, and all the volunteers. And um, Mark Schwarzkopf, who is, I mean, the guy's a wizard, uh, actually. So I'm I'm thankful for him. Mike Hall, seriously one of the most gifted guys I've ever known. Um, I'm thankful how he loves Bethel, how he loves downtown, how he loves everybody that comes down here. He's probably the most interesting person I've ever known in my life as well. If you know Mike, you know that to be true. And Eric Barton, who is um, an amazing leader and a very gifted teacher. And so I'm glad to be here this morning, although a little intimidated. He's with his mom this weekend. And so um, I had the opportunity to step in and be here. So here's what we're going to do. Um. So I, from what I understand, you guys go what an hour, hour and a half. Uh, on the, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to walk us through Mark chapter 11. And so, if you go to your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, or we'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to read uh, the t- uh, 25 verses in Mark 11. So there's a little bit I'm not going to read, but I'm going to read all 25 of those verses. I'm going to pray, and then we're going, to, uh, we're going to walk through. And what we see here is we are going to see two pictures of worship, all right? And so as we're reading this, as we're looking at these two pictures of worship, I want you to think about, okay, why are you here this morning? As you come to worship, what are your expectations uh, about worship? What What, what is worship supposed to be? What's it supposed to do? And so, um, with that, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is how Mark records it. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the, the, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and, and others spread leafy branches and they had cut, uh, that they'd cut from the fields. And those who were before, who went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree... In leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered into the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you've made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him and because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning, the next morning. They saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you would, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. There's a lot to see in this passage, and there's a lot to take away from these two pictures of worship. But, Father, I, I confess we, we, we can't do that on our own. We, we can't do that without the work of your Spirit, and so, Father, I, I pray that this living word um, that's active and, and sharper than a two-edged sword would not return void in our lives this morning. But, Father, our ears would be open, our eyes would be open. Father, our hearts would be open. And so I pray you would do what only you can do. And, Father, that your Spirit would have his way with each of us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I give you a little bit of setting on the passage. As you you go back to to the first verse of chapter 11, Jesus is making his way with the disciples um, to Jerusalem for Passover. In, In fact... Chapter 11 opens up, and it is the Sunday before Passover. And, and Passover, if you remember, this is, uh, you know, the Jewish people, they were celebrating. It was a remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. And it, it's, um, it pointed to the 10th the and the last plague that happened in Egypt. It was the death of the firstborn whether whether a living person or an animal and but God he comes to Moses and he instructs the people through Moses to place blood on the doorsteps of their houses and God kept the people safe. And so this is the the Passover that's being celebrated and it was a very festive time. And so people from all over were descending upon Jerusalem. In fact, that week of Passover, the population would have tripled or quadrupled in Jerusalem. Josephus, a first century historian, he tells us that during the week of Passover, as many as 25,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. There was lots of activity that was happening. Well, Mark's giving us a destination. If, if, you, if you went back to, to Mark 8, beginning in verse 22, it's a hinge there. And, and Jesus changes course. He's been wandering around Galilee, as, as Eric's been talking about, um, all these weeks. And, but then in chapter 8, 22, Jesus move, is moving out of Galilee, and he's going to make his way toward Jerusalem. And it takes him two and a half chapters to get to, to Jerusalem. And during that time, he's been teaching his disciples and he's been teaching his disciples about, you know, the, the kingdom that's to come and, and, and his role in it. And he, and he tells the disciples three times, when I get to Jerusalem, they're, they're going to uh, um, arrest me and, and beat me and I'll be hung on a cross and I'll die and I'll lay in a grave and then I'll be resurrected to new life. And the disciples never could understand what it was that Jesus meant, no matter how plain he told them. And so here they are. They've come to Jerusalem from, the, uh, from, from Jericho, this 12-mile trip. And they, they come in. They see the Mount of Olives. And if you were coming in the road, you'd see the Mount of Olives. To the, to the right was, was Bethany, and to the left was Bethpage. Bethany was where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. That's where Jesus stayed when he was in that area. Bethpage is the place where the donkey is. And Jesus tells them, He's gonna give them these instructions. He he's gonna he he's essentially gonna send them out on an errand to fetch a donkey. Now, you have to think about this. It's is, is incredible. There's a lot, of mount, a lot of detail Mark gives us about this transportation that Jesus is going to have. He, Mark gives us more detail than anything. And he's, and he's alerting us that, that, that what is revealed prophecy is going to be exactly executed. That what has been prophesied back in Zechariah chapter 9 that Jesus is going to fulfill exactly as it was prophesied. You know, one of the, the things about it is, is that these disciples, when they're on this road uh, from Mark 8 to by the time they get to Jerusalem, they've been talking a lot about their own glory. You know, when uh, they had an argument that Jesus overheard and they were embarrassed about, that they were arguing amongst themselves, who, who was the greatest amongst them. There's also the scene where where, uh, James and John, they go to Jesus and say, hey, listen, when, when your kingdom comes, can one of us sit at your right hand and one of us sit at your left hand? Jesus continues to tell them it's not about being served, it's about serving. It's not about finding your life here, it's about losing your life. And so these glory seekers become donkey fetchers. In obedience to Jesus. Well, quickly, I want you to see verse 7. Uh, Jesus isn't hiding. This is a very public scene. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and it's specifically recalling that, that this image that Zechariah gives us in Zechariah chapter 9. That, that the Messiah King is going to enter Jerusalem. And he's going to enter Jerusalem on a colt. In fact, the, the, the way the colt's described, it, it's never been ridden. So you can just imagine how fun that was to carry that donkey all the way to Jesus, one who'd never been ridden, which means he'd never been broken. I remember I was a Wrangler one summer at a young life camp and we, we had this deal we'd say, you know, we'd ask all the, the high school kids, Hey, have you have you ever anybody here not ever ridden a horse? you know, and, and of course you'd have people from Michigan or Wisconsin or you know. New York, and they say, "No, I've never ridden a horse." And we'd say, "No problem, we have horses that have never been ridden." And um, only the people that knew anything would laugh at that. All right, so, um, but but Jesus would have stood out. Most people walked in the gates. That's what pilgrims did. You came to Jerusalem. You were supposed to, as a pilgrim walk through the gate, but Jesus isn't going to do that. He wants to be noticed, whereas he's been in hiding for all these chapters. Now Jesus is coming out. He wants to be noticed, and he's doing this in such a way that he's drawing attention to exactly who he is. In fact, the people know who he is. They begin to pick up from these psalms, you know, from 113 to 118. They're the hallelujah psalms. And they begin to sing right there at the end in, in Psalm 118, Hosanna. They know what Jesus is saying about himself, and he's saying about himself, I am the king, I am the Messiah that has been prophesied. And so they begin to worship. Now, here's the thing, though, that Mark wants us to see. It'll take a couple of chapters for us to fully see it. But this crowd there that's on the, you know, this Sunday afternoon crowd. Who's crying Hosanna and worshiping from Psalm 118 and and saying all of the right things that are supposed to be said? In five days' time, many of these people will be crying out at the top of their lungs, Crucify Him. So it makes you wonder what is it that happened between Sunday and and Friday, what, 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 what happens in the lives of these people that they would go from singing and shouting Psalm 118 to being part of the crowd that at the top of their lungs is demanding for Pilate to sentence Jesus to crucifixion? Well, here are some observations. One, Jesus is doing more than the crowd understands. See, in fact, you find out in John's gospel, the disciples didn't even really fully understand. It says that they didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him. They didn't even really know what was going on. And we don't want to miss what God's doing in this scene. I mean, he's bringing this fulfillment of prophetic promises that he's made, and these promises are aimed at Redemption, And it is a scene to make visible the glory of Jesus. The problem is that the, the purposes of the people that were there, Here's what I found. their purposes were not aligned with God's purposes. Let's say it again, that their purposes were not aligned with God's purposes. <laughs> but, They had something else in mind for Jesus as they began singing the end of Psalm 118. It's a a scene in which the people, they're confused about the coronation in which they are participating in. The second deal, Jesus is doing more than the crowd understands. Secondly, the, the crowd's playing a part in the story that they don't fully understand. The, the crowd that's there, they're playing a part in the story that they don't fully understand. They're singing a song. In fact, they're singing a, a biblical song. They're singing the right song, and they're playing a part in a story that they don't fully understand. They were, they were part of the prophetic fulfillment of God, yet they didn't understand what was being fulfilled. The reason is, is because they were wanting Jesus to fulfill the story that they were trying to write. They had prophetic words in their mouth, but they had a personal agenda in their heart. And you know this because five days later, Jesus wasn't who they thought he was going to be. And so they want to crucify him. See, in some ways you might say this is false worship of the true king. False worship of the true king. I think that happens sometimes. I think that happens on Sunday morning sometimes. We, we come, we have, we have agendas in our heart, we have things, listen, Jesus, you've got to do this. I mean, we have it all planned out. We're trying to write a story. We're trying to write a story that includes our significance, and our comfort and all our aspirations, whether personally or socially or politically. And so we come to worship the true king, but it doesn't amount to much more than false worship. See, the king of kings and lord of lords cannot be reduced to a personal deity of our own making for our own desires. The King of kings and the Lord of lords cannot be usurped by our personal agendas and our petty desires. The desires of our heart will fail at any attempted coup that's trying to seize the true throne. Because Jesus is not the servant of our desires. He's not come to reign over the temporary kingdoms of our own making, See, the sad thing is, right theology was in their grasp. But they had no idea what it was they were holding. If there is a danger for a church like Bethel Bible Church, is that we'd have right theology in our grasp without any true understanding of what it is that we are actually holding. See, God's clear vision was misunderstood, and it was confused because it was interpreted through the desires of their heart. And the desires of our heart are a terrible lens with which to interpret what God has to say. See, spiritual truth that's aimed at a personal agenda, that becomes religion. Spiritual truth that's aimed at a political agenda, that becomes idolatry. Spiritual truth that's aimed at comfort and preference and control, all all that becomes deformed. It looks like prejudice and materialism and pride and self-centeredness. And we can only truly understand what God's revealed when we view it through the eyes of faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible without faith to please God. See, we can can only understand through eyes of faith. Salvation is not getting Jesus to do what we want him to do. It's believing Jesus for what he's done. Maybe somebody here needs to hear. I need to hear that there is a kingdom greater than my own. There is a king who's greater than I am, who's, who's going to war for the throne of my heart, and oftentimes our disappointment with Jesus, our disappointment with his church is related more to our misunderstanding about who he truly is and what it is that he's Well, that's the first scene of worship there. We see it's it's really a false worship of the true king. Verse 11, there's this note where Mark tells us, he says, look, this is a transition. Um, uh, Jesus, he goes in to the temple and he looks around. He has a look around, okay? But it's late and then he leaves and goes to Bethany, goes to hang out with Lazarus. Talk about life after being raised from the dead. Lazarus, how's it it going? Anything new since, since you died and now are alive again? This is probably the conversation. And then he wakes up the next morning, and he begins to walk back to Jerusalem. After seeing the temple and all of those things, and it says in verse 12, on the following day, this is Monday of Passion Week, they came to Bethany, and he's hungry. And then seeing the distant fig tree and leaf, he went to see if there was anything he could find on it. And he came to it, and he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And then he says, May no one ever eat from you, from fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So he's hungry, sees a fig tree, comes to the tree, finds only leaves, no figs, and Mark tells us it isn't the season for figs, but then Jesus curses the tree. And we know it's a curse because Peter said it was a curse in verse 21. And some of you are thinking, well, this doesn't look very good for Jesus. I mean, the poor fig tree is just doing what fig trees do, and it's not time yet, right? And, and Jesus is mad at it because he's hungry. And I would say... That's one way to read it, but it's probably not the way Mark intends us to read it. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's he's acting out, if you will, a parable of judgment that he's about to lay on the temple and on the people of God. Fig trees, most likely, they had these two kinds of fruit. And there was a pre-fruit that the fig trees would have. It would leaf. It would give these little buds. If you were a pilgrim, you were a traveler, you could go and you could eat those. Evidently, they tasted very sweet and they were good. Um, But this one didn't have any. And so it it was a tree that was barren, a barren tree. And the Old Testament picture of Israel is that of a fig tree. And barrenness is a picture of judgment. And Jesus is predicting what's about to come. And so in verse 15, Jesus steps back into the temple that he had given a look around the night before. And he enters the temple and he begins to drive out those that sold and those who bought in the temple, all the the commerce, all the financial things going on. And, And you realize this is the reason for the fig tree scene. Because this is more than just about external religion Something heinous is going on in the temple. It's something that is offensive to the righteousness of God. It's about dishonoring God. It's about forsaking God. Really, what Jesus is saying is, listen, you've forsaken the plan of God. They're practicing religion in a way that does not include the one who's meant to be the focus of that religion. In other words, God, Jesus says, listen, God's left the building here. You have forsaken him. See, see, this place, this temple space, it had a it had a meaning, a specific meaning, a sacred holy space that meant something. But it had become a place of business and commerce. And In doing that, it reveals the heart of those that were practicing this religion. And true worshipers, Jesus is giving us, true worshipers with right hearts would not have participated in what's going on. That's Jesus' response because what was going on is the desecration of the holiness of God, the honor of God, the glory of God. God. the a sacred space. Meant to be a a, a place that that reminded you of God and all that He is and that God is the center of all things. That the preeminent center of life the preeminent center of our life. And that's what worship is supposed to do. It's to Align us to to, to realign us all all of our thoughts and and all of our affections and and then uh, our actions to to show us the the reality of the glory and the supremacy of God in our life and in the world. We are not the center of our world, God is. And what Jesus walks in and sees is he sees something man-centered and man-focused. This is less about a place, really. It's more about the heart, what rules your heart. See, the truth is your, your, your heart is like this GPS that pulls you to worship, a, a, a map that, that leads you. And the question is, where does your heart lead you? Where's the GPS set? Psalm 84 is this beautiful psalm, and it starts this way. How lovely, the psalmist writes, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And then he says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. To, to, To be in his presence, this is what he's saying. This in my heart and my flesh, they sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And then he says this, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Whose hearts Lead them to the presence of God. Where's the GPS of your heart set? See, Jesus is displaying real passion here as he confronts what is amounted to false religion. Verse 17, that this place in the temple, it's the court of Gentiles. It's the missionary court, if you will in commerce and market at the entry of the temple was forsaking God's plan. This place had a specific purpose and it had been robbed of the sanctity for which it was designed by God. That's why he said you've made this a, a den for robbers. Who have they robbed? Well, they've robbed God. Verse 18 shows how bad things really are. Look at what it says again. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Why? Because of his theology? But because he was blaspheming? But because he disrupted all the financial Uh, transactions of the day? What what was it that they were seeking to destroy him for? And it says this, it's because they feared him. And because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You see, Jesus was a threat to them. He was a threat to their influence, a threat to their authority, a threat to their system. any, Any Prominence or or power that they had was threatened by Jesus. And, And they want to destroy him out of selfish preservation of the story they were writing for their own lives. And these were the people that led the worship. These were the people that never missed a Sunday. And yet the very presence of Jesus, his real passion confronted their false religion. Their their response had nothing to do with God's honor. It had everything to do with their own honor. And in this, what you see is you see that there's this war between God's glory and, and my glory. There's a war between God's glory... In my glory, there's a war between God's plan and my plan. And it's not just a battle we find in the Old Testament. It's not just a battle we find in the religious leaders of that day. It is a battle that is fought every day in the heart of every single one of us hearing this word this morning. Your heart is a battleground. See, forsaking God, that doesn't always mean that you become an atheist. Forsaking God doesn't mean that you become a liberal or a conservative. It doesn't even specifically mean forsaking the house of God or the the people of God. It could simply mean giving myself to the subtle and functional forms of idolatry all week long. Where my affection is aimed at created glory or personal glory. So I come on Sunday and I sing hymns and listen attentively to a sermon and give a little money. and All the while honoring God with my lips, yet my heart is far from Him, the Bible says. Or that my thoughts are outside of the bounds that God has for me. Romans 12 reminds me. By the mercies of God, I would present my, my body as a living sacrifice, that my mind would be renewed. My actions aren't aligned with who He is, my actions are aligned with the, the focus and the desires of my heart. So, see, my relationships, the, my heart is, is ruled by being right. Or or being in control. Has that ever happened to you? Being right is being in control. It's not being ruled by God's humility or His plan or considering others better than than myself for the sake of Christ or or gentleness or patience or, or forgiveness. And so this passage is this warning to us. There is a battle and a war that's being waged in your heart. And it's so easy to be Sunday morning worshipers who are weekly idolaters. And it's a warning because the, the themes here that the temple became what it was, and, and, and our hearts become what they are when we forget God's place in our life. And so they leave the temple, and I'm sure the disciples were all too happy to get out of the temple once this is going on. And they, they are... Um, they head back to, uh, back to the, to, went out of the city. They go back to Bethany. And then on in, in verse 20, and then we'll wrap it up here, they, they're coming back the next day. This is Tuesday. They walk, and they pass the fig tree, and Peter remembers, and he says, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And then Jesus says some interesting things. It seems like a hodgepodge, but it, it really isn't in the context of all that... <laughs> Mark's been telling us. He says, have faith in God. And then he says, truly I say to whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Having faith in God in this context means, listen, acknowledging the existence of God and the centrality of God in your life and believing in His power. That's what Jesus means. He's the center of my life, and He is the source of all power. And Jesus' point in verse 23 is not that we would exercise power to displace mountains simply because we would rather the ground to be flat He's giving us these beyond categories, if you will, as an example of the power of God that by grace He's willing to unleash upon His people. That's what it's about. Verse 24 is not name it and claim it theology. Probably no greater abuse has been done to God's Word than Mark 11, 24 Rather, it's governed by verse 22 that says, Have faith in God, which means when we acknowledge His existence and we acknowledge His glory and supremacy as the center of all things, we believe in His power, and so we pray in accordance with His plan and His will. And He's pleased to include us in our prayer in accomplishing what we're asking. And in the asking, we reveal... He's the center. He's pleased to do whatever a heart like that asks. Aiming at the true needs of His people, needs that He has defined. If we do it and we don't doubt, He says in verse 23. And that's the war we're talked about. That doubt's part of the war. It's the one I wake up with every morning in my heart. It's the battle every morning that we each face. And the war's not just vertical. It's not, it's not, just, it's not just this way. We, 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 we fight for our faith. It's also horizontal. The, the war includes forgiveness. And, and you talk about a mountain that needs to be moved in most of our lives. It's the one of forgiveness. Faith is not just merely a a vertical exercise. not something we just think about. It's not just something we do with the words in our mouth. Faith is something that you live with your life. That's why John will say in his first letter, if anyone says I love God and hates his neighbor, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... Cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, the question about faith that Jesus is asking is in your life, are you is consistent in in, in the celebration of his forgiveness as you are in forgiving others. It's it's faith demonstrated and, and lived out in life faith to move mountains. Well, for this, all of this that we've talked about today, we need grace, don't we? Jesus lived every moment of his life for his Father's honor. and Every moment of his life for his Father's glory. And he gave his life For the purpose of his father's plan. So that. In our struggle. When we confuse our glory with his. And we confuse our plan. With his. We would have the grace. We need Jesus lived the life you could not live. So that he could forgive and and rescue you and me in the midst of our struggle, and there's grace in the struggle. And the struggle says this, that we would love His glory more than our own. We'd love His plan more than our own. And then in very practical ways, we'd live like we believe. The power of God... And the willingness of God, that that's invaded our lives by grace. And there's hope. There's hope for every one of us. So why would you come this morning? What was your hope in coming to, to worship this morning? And what did you expect? Well, my hope is that you ran headlong into Jesus. You ran headlong into His grace. And that your faith is encouraged this morning. And at the places that need to be, your heart is convicted. I know mine is. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you you do this morning what only you can do. One of the old theologians of the Reformation said, our hearts are, are idle factories, which meant our, our hearts are always at war, always competing against who you are, and the story that you're writing. And so, Father, this morning, would you, by your spirit, just lavished in grace, would you convict us this morning? And we'd say, oh, yeah, there it is. That, that's the place. I, that's, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then, Father, we confess that this morning. We turn the glory over to you. We turn the plan over to you. Father, all over again this morning, we turn our hearts to you. We we align ourselves, we realign ourselves with what you are doing. Father, we want to truly worship the true king. Help us to do that. We ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.